the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee from the National Prayer Chapel. I'm so glad you've joined us today. Did you know that it matters what you think? It matters what you think because out of that thinking, actions will come. We first think, we act. I'm thinking about last Thursday's broadcast where I talked with you about Romans, the seventh chapter. Had some very interesting responses. One person who listened to that broadcast responded by saying, no way, I disagree. Romans 7 is describing, according to this person, the experience of the Apostle Paul and the experience of every Christian. Well, how did this person come to that conclusion? Certainly not from the Scriptures. But in our arrogance, we believe what we believe and we think what we think. And there is required a great humility of heart to allow what we think to be changed, thus changing our behavior based on the clear word of Scripture, not based on what I believe, not based on what I say. You need to be checking everything I say by the word of God, and either it's in the word of God or it is not true. It is either in the word of God or it is not true. I cannot go beyond the scriptures. I can only preach as far as the scriptures allow me to preach. We're going to go into deep water today. But let me just quickly say a few things about Romans 6, 7, and 8. In Romans 6, the Apostle Paul writes, and here, please hear me, context, context, context. It's the first rule of hermeneutics. Don't pull a passage of Scripture out and, and say, this is what it means, without looking at the passages of Scripture that surround that Scripture. The Scripture does not disagree with itself. It is in unity. It is given by the Holy Spirit. And we must read the context of the passage. I can prove almost anything by pulling one scripture out. I can prove that you should go and hang yourself. But not in context. Romans, the sixth chapter, verse 11. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to somebody to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, 
if you believe that Romans 7 is speaking about the normal life of the Christian, then you're in total disagreement with Romans, the sixth chapter. They both cannot be true. It's impossible that they both be true. It's not possible. And so we have to come to the conclusion that we're not thinking right, that our thoughts have gone askew, that both cannot be true. Do you believe that the Apostle Paul walked in sin? Well, if you believe that, then he's lying to us in Romans 6. He says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Was the Apostle Paul set free from sin and a slave to righteousness? Then you come to chapter 7. Let me read a portion of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 4. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So Paul is saying he's been set free from the law of sin and death. Again, in Romans the 8th chapter, the first verse, he'll say the same thing. But now, those who want to say that Romans 7 describes the life of the Apostle Paul, they have to totally turn that off, cut out chapter 7, the first part, cut out chapter 6, disregard it. And then, verse 10, I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death for sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Now verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. Really? You would agree that the Apostle Paul is unspiritual in his conversion? in his statement of faith in the first part of chapter 7 and in all of chapter 6, where, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You think the apostle Paul is walking in sin? If so, he can't be saved, according to his own word in chapter 6. Do you see how nonsensical this becomes? He says, I'm sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good, as it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. Wait a minute. 
Paul said sin is no longer in his life because he's now a slave to righteousness. That's Romans 6, verse 18. So he says, so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, chapter 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul is saying, I've been set free from sin. Now, Why are we so invested in believing that these brief passages in the seventh chapter of Romans are the normal life of the Christian? I'll tell you why. Because if we can agree that we never can do what we want to do and we can never leave sin, then we don't have to leave sin. And we can say, we're Christians but I'm a sinner, like the bumper sticker says. The difference between you and me is that I'm forgiven. What an arrogant, ugly lie. The word forgiven, that we'll get to in just a moment, comes from the word athame, which means to remove from. You cannot be forgiven of sin and not have that sin removed from your life. If the sin is still in your life, you are not forgiven. Where athame means to remove. To remove. Now, I'm going back to this today to share with you how important it is that we think correctly about the gospel. I find that most people who call themselves Christians recognize that they are in a great struggle with sin and they don't have the victory over it. Why don't they have the victory over it? couple of reasons. One, they don't have their eyes on Jesus. They have their eyes on themselves. And secondly, they love their sin and they love to feel bad about it because if they feel bad about it, they don't have to get rid of it. They can punish themselves by condemning themselves and saying, what a stupid fool I am. Why would I behave like that? But I can't help it. It's just who I am. God will have to accept me the way I am. No, God never accepts us the way we are. He changes us. He releases us. He sets us free. He washes us. He cleanses us. Now, 
I want to talk with you about the book of Colossians, and we'll stay with Colossians as long as it takes this week. Colossians, the first chapter. Paul is in prison. This is one of the prison epistles. He writes one to Ephesus. He writes one to Philippi. He writes one to the church at Galatia. These are the prison epistles. Now, as I have read many times the book of Colossians, I generally skip over all of the first part and go to my favorite go-to scriptures. In every book of the Bible, I have my go-to scriptures, my favorite. Unfortunately, when I study in that kind of shallow manner, I miss a great deal of context. The book of Colossians is very similar to the book of Ephesians, but Ephesians is much more edited, massaged, with some material added. Colossians is, is rough. But in the roughness of the book of Colossians, some very important things are revealed to us. He begins the book of Colossians by saying who he's writing to. He's writing to the holy ones, to the righteous ones, not to the sinners. He's writing to people who have left their sin. He says in verse 3, we give thanks to God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, always praying for you. Why is he always praying for the church at Colossae? Well, he tells us because he has heard of their faith in Jesus Christ. And he has heard about their wonderful love for each other. Because of that, he knows that they have a hope laid up in heaven. Now, as we begin to study this, let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we open the book of Colossians, I'm asking, please, would you open our hearts and our minds to give up perhaps the way we have always thought and let our thoughts be retrained and redirected that we could have the thoughts of you, Jesus, as revealed to us in the scriptures. Lord, thank you. I pray for the Holy Spirit's presence now to come in great power. I pray in your name. Amen. Now, the foundation of this book is found in faith in Jesus Christ. I don't want to go quickly over that phrase. What does faith in Jesus Christ mean? What's the definition that we must deal with? If you look at chapter 11 of Hebrews, 
he tells us what faith is. Faith is the assurance of things being expected. That's the literal translation. And inner conviction of things not being seen. So if we apply that to this passage of Scripture, faith in Jesus means that we have a great expectation of Jesus. And because of that, we also have a great conviction in our hearts that this is correct. And because of that, we have now entrusted ourselves completely into the hands of Jesus. We don't trust our culture. We don't trust what people say to us. We don't trust what preachers teach us. We trust Jesus Christ. And we trust the word of God as it's given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, faith in Jesus Christ and love for all of the holy ones. Self-sacrificing love. Not just friendship, but where we lay our lives down for each other. Where we make sure we meet the needs of one another. Because of the hope awaiting you in the heavens. In other words, we have a hope in an eternal destiny. We heard about that hope by the word of truth as it was preached in the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he says, this bearing of fruit is increasing. In other words, you're not standing still. You've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're expressing your love for those who are in need and for the brothers and sisters in the church. And you're doing that because your hope is not in your job or in your health or in your money, your hope is not in your family, your hope is in heaven. Your hope is in Jesus Christ and the eternity that he has promised to us. Now they learned this from Epaphras, a preacher who followed the Apostle Paul, who ministered to the church in Colossae. And if you read history, you find he also spent his whole life there and died there ministering to these people. He was, Paul said, a faithful minister of Christ. He is the one having made known to Paul the great love they shared in the Spirit. Now, because of that great love, Let's, let's lay this out in a very plain way. Because they had the hope in heaven and because they had total faith in Jesus Christ and in that hope laid up for them and because they had love for the holy ones. Now the Apostle Paul is going to begin to pray for them. When I hear a man pray, I know who he is. When I hear a woman pray, I know who she is. 
It's hard to lie in prayer. We expose who we really are when we pray, what our motives are, what our attitude is, whether we're humble or proud. He began to ask that this church be filled with the full knowledge of God's will. Now, most translations don't put full knowledge. They put just knowledge. And you know that the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. Gnosis. The G is not pronounced. Some say gnosis, but that's, that's not correct. It's gnosis. Now, the word in the Greek is not gnosis. Gnosis is a general information. Instead, the word is epignosis. Epignosis. This is a vital term used as a guardian against air. It is far more than just gnosis. It is literally a full knowledge of the will of God. Now, we have to differentiate between two words that are used here in this passage. One is knowledge, and the other is wisdom. Paul is saying, I am praying for you for very specific knowledge of how God works, of of how he operates, of how he feels about certain behaviors and certain actions and what he desires for us. It's not just the knowledge that, yep, there's a God up there. No, this is specific knowledge of the nuts and bolts of how God works. Wisdom, on the other hand, is the overarching philosophy, idea of how the gospel works. So he's praying here. Let's read it. I do not cease praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So he's saying, I don't want you just to have wisdom. I don't want you to just understand the big picture. I want you to understand the nuts and bolts of everyday operation so that you can walk according to the Spirit and have the approval of God in your life. I want you to walk worthy of the Lord, to please Him in every way, in every good work, being fruitful and and causing increase in the full knowledge of God. In other words, as you go about, you are to share the actual experiential knowledge of God that you have found. Being strengthened with all might according to his glorious sovereignty unto all endurance and steadfastness with joy. If your trust is totally in Jesus, Paul is saying, if you love the saints, I'm willing to pray for you. And what I'm going to pray for you is that you would understand how God operates. 
in your life in detail. Nothing left to chance. You need to understand what makes God happy and what makes him angry. When I was a little boy, shared this before, I was riding in the back seat of my father's 1936 Chevrolet. It was an old car when I was riding in it. And of course, there's no air conditioning. And so I had the windows, all the windows were rolled down in the car, and we passed a young boy on the street walking by himself, and I shouted an insult at him, called him a name. My dad, without even thinking, hit the brakes, stopped the car, pulled me out, and gave me a whipping right there on the street. Why did he do that? Because cruelty and injustice made my father very angry. And he was not going to have a son of his acting in an unjust way toward a stranger. I learned that day that my daddy would get very, very angry if I insulted another person and called them names. That was an important lesson for me, and I've carried it with me all the rest of my life. Cruelty to animals, cruelty to people makes me angry today. And I'm apt to become violent if necessary. I'm not going to tolerate it. I see an animal or I see a person injured, needing help, threatened. I'm going to help them in every way I can. My dad taught me that. But see, I also know that's how Jesus operates. I know that what dad taught me, he learned from Jesus about the practical inner workings of how God functions. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father, the one having qualified us for the share of the allotment of the holy ones in the light. There is an allotment saved in heaven for you. If you walk holy before God, that is without sin, who delivered us out from the authority of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. That word is very interesting. It's much more than moving a person from one place to another. It's not just transferred. It's not that the person that used to be is transferred, but rather he is transformed and he is translated. You see, God will not transfer you into his kingdom when you're walking in rebellion and sin against him. The entrance into the kingdom of God is via confession of all known sin, 
repentance of all known sin. Repentance meaning more than just turning and going another direction. It is turning toward God. And after that repentance, total consecration, a total giving of oneself into the hand of Jesus. And we're going to get more in depth as we go into the book on this subject. But it is a literal stripping off of the old man of sin in our hearts so that the old man of sin is removed from us and we walk in newness of life. Now, I'm sharing this with you today because I'm so excited about changing the way I had thought for many years. For many years, I was constantly under condemnation. I judged myself. I could never be good enough. And I believed Romans 7 was saying to me, you're never going to be good enough, and you can never get everything right. And I came to a point of such despair in my life. I said, if I can't get it right, what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to die. And I began to be taught by Jesus that a man or a woman can leave their sin. Now, the vast majority of Christians in America do not believe you can ever leave your sin. I heard the Bible answer man say scornfully to a caller, you're a bitter sinner and you can never be anything but and you're saved by grace. Really? That's like saying to a man, you rescued your wife, you married her, but now you're letting that rapist come and ravage her anytime he wants to. Are you kidding me? Would Jesus allow Satan to come and rape his church anytime he wants to do that? Of course not. The devil can't treat God's people that way. He's giving thanks in his prayer to the Father, the one who qualified us by confession and repentance and consecration to the allotment of the holy ones in the light. If you're still walking in sin, you're not one of the holy ones. And you're not in the light, you're walking in the dark. And if you're walking in the dark and you're trying to follow Jesus, you are discouraged. Who delivered us out from the authority of darkness. Have you been delivered out from the authority of darkness? Or are you still struggling under the authority of darkness? Let me tell you what happened last Wednesday to me. I was awakened. I went to sleep Tuesday night. Sometime in the early morning of Wednesday, I was awakened. I was in a dream. I was sitting at a, a table made for one, a small coffee table. But there was also another chair there at that table. I don't know who was around me. I just was sitting at that table. And as I was sitting there, a demon man pushed his way in and sat down opposite me at my table. 
And he said to me, Preacher, I want to talk to you. And I instantly knew it was a demon. I leaped to my feet. I shoved my chair back. I leaped to my feet. I said, I will not speak with you, Mr. Devil. I have nothing to say to you. And I walked away. And as I was walking away, this demon shouted after me, Preacher, I'm going to mess you up. I woke up, and I immediately began to bind that power of darkness and say, you will not touch me because Jesus has not given you permission to touch me. You can only do what he grants you permission, and I am under his pasak. I am under his protective wing. The devil, you cannot touch me. Now, there have been times in my past where the devil has come and threatened me, and I've almost died. This time, I was absolutely clear in the spirit to say, demon, I'm leaving, and you're not going to touch me. I took authority in the spirit, and I bound that demon power, and I walked out on it. I would not even listen to what he had to say to me. I have no interest in anything the dragon can say. It is all lies. Oh, my brother, my sister. I dwell. I dwell literally with Jesus. And I'm praying today. I was up early crying out to the Lord for you asking that every one of you be translated, that you be transferred from the power of darkness to the power of God in the kingdom of his Son. Verse 14, in whom we have the redemption by means of his blood. I remember my, my dad told me a story when I was a little boy. He told me there was a, a dad and a little son, and the son wanted to build a sailboat, a little sailboat, not a, not a big one, a little one, one he could take down to the river that ran close by the creek, and he could sail his boat there. And so they worked and worked and worked in the woodshop, and they made a sailing vessel. You've probably, if you've been to Paris or France, you've seen these ponds in the parks, and there is a, a stand, and a man is renting little sailboats to children. And he'll rent the sailboat for an hour, and they'll take a stick with them, and they'll put it in the pond, and it'll race across in the wind when the sail is set right, and they'll run around, and they'll pick it up on the other side and set it back, back and forth, back and forth. Well, this little boy with his daddy took the boat down to the river. And they put it in. But the sail wasn't set quite right. And the boat took off in the mainstream water and it was quickly taken downstream and they couldn't catch it. Well, the boy was heartbroken. The next day, 
He went downtown with his daddy, and they passed by a pawn shop. And suddenly they stopped, because in the pawn shop window was the boat they had built together. Someone had found it and brought it and sold it to the pawn shop. The little boy said, Daddy, we have to go in and get our boat. That's, that's our boat. We built that boat. So they went in, and they spoke to the man behind the counter, and they said, Sir, the boat you have in the window is our boat. We built it in our workshop. And the man behind the counter said, I'm sorry. I bought that boat. And the little boy said, Daddy, Daddy, buy the boat. So he took out his wallet and he paid for the boat. And as they're walking out of the store, my daddy said the little boy was clutching that sailboat in his arms. And he was saying to himself, little boat, we built you. And now daddy has bought you. You're twice mine. I love that story because I understood immediately. Jesus made us. But the Father sent him to be an atonement on the cross. And he bought us. He made us and he bought us. We are twice his. We don't belong to the devil. The blood of Jesus Christ purchased us at Calvary's tree. redemption. That's what redemption means, to buy back by means of his blood the forgiveness of the sins. But let's break that down, please. The word forgive comes from the word apony, which literally means to remove from. You see, how do I put this? Does the blood of Jesus Christ at Calvary only bring the remission of sins and deliver from the guilt and penalty and wrath of God against sin and not remove the sin? Is the blood merely a cancellation or a release from the responsibility for sin? Or does it remove the sin? The blood of Christ, if it does not remove the sin, is no better than the blood of bulls and goats as it speaks about in Hebrews 10.4. Now let's be clear. The blood of Jesus Christ removes our sin. And if we continue to walk in it, we have not been redeemed. We are just religious. I am very concerned that you know, beyond the question 
that can be asked. That you were bought by Christ. And you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And in that place is great joy and peace. In that place is oneness with God. And how do you get to that place? You pray it through until you're given the victory in Jesus Christ. For if you're sinning, you're loving your sin. And you've got to go before the throne of God and say, please make me hate this sin. And then you pray, Lord, remove it from me and transfer me out of this sin. And you stay there until it's a done work, until it's finished. Now, on what basis can Jesus forgive our sin and remove it from us? Is he just like a bull or a goat or a lamb in the Old Testament, covering over our sin but cannot remove it? Is your sin not removed until you die? Is death then your Savior and not Jesus? No. The Scriptures tell us in Colossians, the first chapter, verse 15, that Jesus is the exact representation of the invisible God. Firstborn in reference to all creation, for by him, this is, Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. The things in heaven, the things on the earth, the things visible and things invisible, whether thrones or lordships, whether rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. But he himself is before all things, and all things have been held together by him. And he himself is the head of the body, the church. The church is to be made up of men and women who have gained through the blood of Jesus the total victory over all unrighteousness. For in, for in him, all the fullness was considered good to dwell. And by him, to completely reconcile all things to himself, having made peace by means of the blood of the cross through himself, whether things on the earth or things in the heavens. And you have been formerly alienated and enemies in attitude by the evil works, but now he completely reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless without reproach before him if indeed you continue in your faith, in your confidence in Jesus Christ. Being established and firm and not being moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now, I'm going to use a word that's used in Colossians the first chapter, verse 31, the second part, so that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. It is the goal of the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians 
to give you a new way of thinking and with absolute confidence in the atoning power of the blood of Jesus Christ to totally set you free and make you washed and perfect in reality before the eyes of God. Now, we don't have that for the most part in the American church because we have loved our sin. And we have compromised with the powers of darkness. And we've not been willing to change our thinking and get a hold of the fact that we can identify with Jesus Christ today and be totally transformed and changed. So instead of working on your sin, put your eyes on Jesus and pray and wait until he finishes the work in your heart of transferring you into the kingdom of light and out of the kingdom of darkness. Why are so many of you who listen still remaining in the kingdom of darkness discouraged, giving way to sin? Because you've not allowed Jesus to transfer you in your thinking into the kingdom of light. going to go in even deeper tomorrow invite someone to listen with you would you we're going to go in we're going to finish the first chapter my favorite go-to passage i've not shared with you out of that first chapter yet it's powerful it's found in verse 27 if you want to be a scholar and go look it up been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, and it's my intention to help you change the way you think by looking honestly at the message in Colossians. God bless you, my brother and my sister. I look forward to hearing from you. You can give online by going to nationalprayerchapel.com and clicking on that upper right-hand corner, or you can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel. Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Don't believe the devil's lie that you cannot be set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can be set free. And I intend to help you be set free this week. I love you, my brother. I love you, my sister. Go in God's peace. Study this first chapter. Talk to you soon. You cannot live.